Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have all of you with us for today's Political Rewind. Um, we have so much to talk about with the panel that we've assembled. I want to introduce them right away and uh, get started. Uh, it's Tuesday, which means Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is my partner on the show today. Thanks for being here tomorrow. Always seems to be raining every Tuesday. Oh, I didn't even think about that. Now, from now on, I'm going to... Okay. Thank you for <laughs> Sorry, making... Sorry, Bill. Yeah. Uh, you working on anything special that you want to share with us? Anything coming working up big? Working on a story about women legislature, l- women oh. legislators. So actually, it's perfect that I'm here with two of these it, panelists. Well, and let's go ahead and introduce them. Uh, one of them is State Senator Kay Kirkpatrick, uh, who represents th- District 32, Sandy Springs, East Cobb, right? Exactly. Um so, Senator, we're glad you could be here today. Um, we make sure our uh, listeners know a little bit more about you. You're an orthopedic hand surgeon. I am. But um, when I read your bio the other day, it was interesting because we asked you to come on the show to talk about issues that are going on that you're concerned about in terms of health care in the state. But one of the lines in your bio really stood out for me. Um, it says that... Um, as a district coordinator for the Medical Association of Georgia's Medical Reserve Corps, you're determined to contribute to Georgia's ability to respond to disaster and emergency situations. So I guess, are we in one right now? Uh, I would say that we are getting close, mm. although I have to tell you that uh, Dr. Toomey, I know pretty well, and uh, she's a seasoned person who worked at CDC for 20 years, mm-hmm. and I think she's the right person in the right place at the right time, and I think the state is definitely on top of what's going on. We have been singing her praises uh, uh, ever since all of this began because we know that she is extraordinarily well thought of in the public health community, and uh, so I, I guess she is the right person for the job right now. Uh, Melita Easters is with us today. Um, Melita is not herself in the legislature, but you have been responsible for putting an awful lot of women in seats in the legislature over the years as the founder and director of the Georgia Win List, which uh, it has a mission of identifying and supporting pro-choice Democratic women for uh, various offices in the state. Thank you for having me on. I'm always happy to talk about the 70 women we've helped elect over the years, 20 years now, and 44 currently serving. We will uh, get to that a little bit later. I want to hear, uh, now the qualifying is uh, over, I want to hear a, uh, a report from you on w- where you stand in terms of the women that you're uh, trying to get elected in, in the legislature. Um, and Joel Alvarado is with us. Uh, he is with Ohio River South Consulting. He and Howard Franklin, also a frequent panelist on the show, uh, work together over there. My condolences, although you personally, Joel, were not working on the Michael Bloomberg camp, Georgia campaign. Your partner, Howard Franklin, was. And I guess that's a big client down the drain. <laughs> well, it is. it was a big client, but we learned a lot from it, met a lot of incredible people by working in his uh, campaign. And we believe that um, 
we added something to the conversation here in the state of Georgia. Okay. Um, we're going to talk presidential politics later on in the show. Uh, but let's start, of course, with the latest on coronavirus. Um, let me just give you a few of the headlines that um, some of you may have heard, but, but let's put them all in one place. Uh, Georgia now has six confirmed and 11 presumptive cases of uh, COVID-19, according to the governor's office, which released that information late last night. Fulton County has shut down all of its schools for the day today because uh, a staff member who worked at two of the schools was um, diagnosed with COVID-19. The state is preparing an isolated area at a state park out in Morgan County, hard labor state park, to hold potential virus victims. Doug Collins is one of now six members of Congress who is They are all self-quarantining, many of them because they came into contact with an individual who is at CPAC, the uh, big conservative annual conference, and um, that person tested positive. One of the pictures that's making the rounds today is is a video of Doug Collins last Friday shaking hands with President Trump on the at, at, as he came in to Atlanta. So I imagine we're going to see more about whether there's any reason for the, there to be concern there. Mark Meadows, the president's new chief of staff, is self-quarantining. <laughs> he apparently too was at CPAC and, and ran into the person. Uh, pass, the passenger who came off a Delta flight flight from South Korea. I, I apologize. I'm not sure it was a Delta flight, but a passenger who came off a flight from South Korea and appeared to uh, the uh, TSA folks to maybe have symptoms, uh, which got everybody quite concerned out at Hartsfield Airport, turned out to be negative. Um, and the Coca-Cola company has told all of its employees at its main global headquarters here close to us in Midtown to work from home today. They say in some ways it's a test. Then, just to finish this off, we've just received uh, news that Delta has uh, taken some pretty dramatic steps tomorrow. Yeah, my colleague Kelly Yamanucci reported about 30 minutes ago that they're going to be slashing their flights by about 15 percent in response to the the coronavirus. That includes 20 to 25 percent of their international flight capacity and 10 to 15 percent of their domestic flight capacity. Um, and they they really seem to be slashing their flights to the Pacific, 65 percent of. Uh, cuts in their flight capacity, Kelly reports. So big, big move for, for the world's largest airline. Um, well, I can tell you, I, I I had not related to anything to do with sickness, but I wanted to make a change in a flight I'm making very soon on Delta. And at five o'clock this morning when I called, thinking, well, that's a good time to try to make a change, I got into a call queue that I was told would be four hours. Mm. Hopefully you won't miss it while you're on the show. Well, I just got the call back (laughs) just as the theme song was playing, and I had to cancel it. So I'll probably wait seven or eight hours now. So first you, if you could, Kate, just pick up any of those things and tell me what you're thinking. Well, let me just go through some pretty basic things. First of all, the Department of Public Health website is a great source of information. The state is being very transparent, I feel, and uh, there's some... Simple things that people can do to be safe. One is, and you've heard this before, and I don't want to sound like a broken record, but stay home if you're sick. Wash your hands long enough with soap and warm water 
to sing the chorus of your favorite song twice. Mm-hmm. I like Jolene myself. They're saying happy <laughs> birthday. Good song. Good song. Have, now we've learned that Kate Kirkpatrick is a Dolly fan. That's <laughs> right. And uh, who isn't? But anyway, and then um, they used to say coffin to your elbow. Now we're not doing that. We're coughing into a tissue and then throwing it away. And we're not shaking hands at the Capitol anymore. We're doing uh, elbow bumps and fist bumps, which doctors have been doing for a while, but people are getting pretty creative. They're doing the Vulcan salute. They're doing jazz hands, a lot of other things to greet people without I, I want to see David terms. Ralston doing jazz hands. Okay. That would be very interesting. <laughs> how do you – How do you? and I, that, I'm going to start with you and I'll ask it around the table. Um, we've given uh, the governor, Kathleen Toomey, pretty high marks on this show for the last week in, for the way in which they're handling it. Their transparency is exactly, I think, what people believe they need in a situation like that. And without regard to partisanship, uh, they seem to be aware of how important the communications effort is right now. I think communication is really important. And I heard um, actually the superintendent of the Department of Education comment on this yesterday at the press conference yesterday afternoon And if school districts are contemplating action, they should be in communication with the Department of Health and the the task force because these decisions have a domino effect in many ways. And so I think the communication is absolutely critical. And the American people and the people of Georgia deserve transparency. That's how we keep people from panicking if they feel that they're being told what's going on. You know, um, there are a number of schools around the country, lower grade schools that have been closing. Melita, it's interesting because uh, we've been getting reports in the last day or so that, number one, younger children are most likely not going to have any impact and that perhaps closing schools is the last thing that you want to do in this situation. Well, it's because then it puts the parents in a jam for finding child care. It's also because those children who are vulnerable, homeless, or from poor households, the meals they get at school mm-hmm. are sometimes the only meals they get. Mm-hmm. And so the schools are an important part of the social safety network for those children who are vulnerable, and closing school puts them at greater risk. I was thinking, Joel, and and I don't certainly am not making light of this uh, by make, making this comparison, but we all know what a school uh, uh, system goes through in trying to decide whether to close a school for weather right. uh, that's coming in, how right. difficult that decision is. Part of it has to do with, you know, protecting the safety. That's number one of the children, but also being mindful of the parents and the kind of thing Melita's talking about. And this is that to uh, a, a much, much greater and magnified degree of intensity. But uh, it is also true that uh, perhaps decisions like this aren't necessarily protecting the children the way that uh, they'd like to be seen as doing. Well, I think part of it, well, first, before I even begin, I just want to personally extend prayers to those individuals, those families that have suffered to date regarding um, the coronavirus and what's happened. Um, we, we have to, this is a time for us to be resilient. This is a time for us to show real leadership. This is a time for us to really work together as a country to ensure that all of our families are safe during this crisis. So, uh, but to answer your question, Bill, directly, 
I think part of it, too, is recognizing that in the in the school ecosystem, there's so many other actors, there's so many other people there who could be impacted by it. And there's also a lot we don't know about it, too. So, you know, I, my son is 14, goes to Inman Park Middle School. Um, shout out to Nation Alvarado Middle School. Make sure you get your work done. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I want to make sure that... Uh, going to his going to his school, I see a range of people. Some people who might be on the spectrum of being most vulnerable. Some people who maybe interact with individuals who could be vulnerable. So th- that's the concern. I think that my my wife and I always look at middle school as a petri dish of of sure. bacteria, right? And so we <laughs> like the state right. capital. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. And so we have to. So we have to be. I think we have to be vigilant there and make sure that it's not so much the kids themselves, but people who come in contact with kids and uh, with the kids and also family members it's a, it's sort of a chain reaction right and we have to look down the chain and make sure that uh, we stop it at the source. So I think that's what some of the concerns are regarding uh, education leaders. Um, Tamar, uh, we're going to, in a little while, talk a bit about what happened in the uh, House Appropriations Committee yesterday in terms of the big budget, the, the fiscal 21 budget. But um, before we get there, and kind of apropos of that, there are lots of concerns about whether about rural health care that have been uh, uh, important in the legislature for a number of years now. Here's what's interesting. Of the COVID-19 confirmed cases, one is Fulton, one Floyd, one Polk, uh, I'm sorry, three Fulton, one Floyd, one Polk, and one Cobb. The presumptive cases are Fulton, Cobb, Fayette, DeKalb, Gwinnett, and Cherokee. In other words, they're all basically metro. So the one thing that is happening right now, at least, is that if there's a shortage of doctors in some parts of rural Georgia, they so far have not been hit by this virus. Exactly. But but if you are indeed sick and you do live in a rural part of, of the state, if you have to drive across several county lines yeah. to get to a hospital or you're dependent on on maybe one county health office that, that mm-hmm. might only have a nurse practitioner or not have many resources, that could be very problematic if, if cases spike. Yeah. So you haven't seen that yet. And I suppose that's, a, a, a at least for the time being, a, a blessing, Kay. I think so. Uh, but, you know, that's where the population is. Well, and, and, and in rural areas, people are further apart, and right. they're not thrown into such large crowd gatherings. Mm-hmm. So a, a mm-hmm. small church in rural South Georgia wouldn't bring as many people together on a Sunday morning as a big downtown congregation All in right. Atlanta. Um, we're going to keep track of uh, uh, the uh, coronavirus in Georgia and developments in the uh, days and weeks ahead, of course, um, and... We're going to be keeping track here at uh, about 9.20 live on a, on a Tuesday morning. The market's about to open in a few minutes. We'll see what happens with a market that lost 2,000 points just yesterday. Is there going to be a rebound or not? We'll keep you informed about that. Um, let's move on. But why don't we stick with the subject of health care, um, Kay Kirkpatrick, because that's one of the areas that you as a doctor – have spent an enormous amount of time working on at the Capitol. You've got a number of measures that matter to you. Pick one, and we'll get the panel engaged in talking about it. Okay, I'm going to pick the one that's most relevant to what we've been talking about, and that is the emergency prescription refill bill that passed the Senate (coughs) yesterday? I don't know, Mm -hmm. someday recently. Um, (laughs) And what it does is it... uh, If there's a state of emergency, if the government declares a state of emergency, or if there's a hurricane warning, it allows people to get their prescription filled early 
as they're trying to evacuate to go to a shelter or whatever. Uh, you mentioned the Medical Reserve Corps. We respond to disasters, hurricanes, and whatever. We're volunteers, uh, physicians, and other healthcare professionals. And a lot of the work that's done in the shelters is refilling prescriptions because people couldn't get that early prescription because of the refill too soon policies of the insurers. And this bill waives that. So, Am I right that that bill passed with very little opposition? I think it was unanimous. Yeah, I mean, what would be the pushback on that measure? I can't imagine there is any, but we need to get it done on the House side, too, so the governor can sign it in case we move to a state of emergency now. Um, one of the other bills, and I think we um, maybe uh, – is, is another one that's of real interest to the public out there, I, I believe, is um, – the bill that would eliminate, or not eliminate, but would attempt to crack down on surprise billing. Um, what does that bill address, and why is it important? Well, let me first say what a surprise bill is. Yeah. If you go to a hospital, for example, where the hospital's in network, but some of the care is provided by doctors and other professionals that are not in network, many times the patient will get a bill weeks or months later that they weren't expecting because they thought they were going to an in-network facility. And the feds have been working on this for a while, but we know how much luck they're getting anything done. And so at the state level, there have been efforts to fix this problem for, well, since before I got there, this is my third session. And this is the first year where there's been bicameral, bipartisan support for a solution to actually get the patient out of the middle of this. And so initially, although most of the problems are emergency settings, this bill also addresses elective procedures. And essentially, it means that if there's an out-of-network provider giving the emergency care, for example, then the provider submits the bill to the insurance company. The patient is out of the middle. If there's a dispute, then there's an arbitration process set up that is handled by the insurance commissioner. Joel, I know this is a subject I think you've been working on at the Capitol along with some of the other health care issues that you're involved with down there. Well, first of all, I wanted to, to tell the senator that thank you for your leadership. And, and I think that's why it's important to have citizen legislators because they bring their level of expertise into the conversation that others may not have in order to create policy that makes sense in those spe specific spaces. So thank you for that. Um, th for me, uh, I'm still going back, uh, Bill, to the question of the five to 600,000 Georgians who don't have access to health care. And in the midst of all that's, that's going on, that is that number continues to, to jump up and really brings consternation to me because that means that if something does happen, these individuals don't have the wherewithal in order to protect themselves and protect their families to ensure that they get the services they need. So I'll hearken back to that and I'll put that on the table. Yeah, and we, can get, and we can talk about that. In fact, I want to tomorrow. I want to take a, a step back and, and talk about why this is a continued problem. This is something that, yeah. that, as Senator Kirkpatrick mentioned, you know, the state has been trying to tackle this for years. The feds have been trying to tackle this for years. The problem is that there's such a standoff right now between the health insurance companies and the hospitals themselves, the people who provide the care. And the problem is that they, they're both very powerful groups, right? And as long as they're at loggerheads, it's kind of kept the patients in the middle of all of this. And everyone, I think, every lawmaker, Republican and Democrat, agree that it's wrong for people to get these surprise bills. 
Well, let me just say that this agreement in the Senate, between the Senate parties and the House parties, very similar bills on both sides, and the Medical Association, the Hospital Association, and the insurance companies are on board with the solution, which means that everyone is equally unhappy with the <laughs> solution, and yet, on the other hand, it gives it a much higher likelihood of getting why through are the they process. All, why, why do you sense that they're trying to work together? Why, why, why the gap between, or, or the standoff typically between the insurance companies, say, and the hospitals and doctors, why are they working together on this sort of thing? Well, I think everybody recognizes that the patients are the ones who are stuck in the middle, and mm -hmm. they're the ones who need to be considered and get out of this awful situation that's causing medical bankruptcies. Uh, and Go ahead. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, so I think this is as close as the state has ever gotten to solving the problem, and I'm very optimistic that it's going to happen this year. There's another health care issue down there that I said right before we went on the air, Melita, I'm just learning about. Um, and it has to do, ultimately, with the cost of pharmaceutical medications um, and how staggeringly high uh, they have become. And, and there is now a bill to address them. And when I say I'm just sort of learning about this, I, I mean that I was not aware of a system in which middlemen, essentially, uh, are working with well, maybe I better get you to give the expertise on this, Kay, and then ask Melita to respond. You essentially have middlemen for the pharmaceutical industry who work with insurance companies, yes, and they together set a price for a given – that the insurance company will pay for a given drug, right? What you're referring to – it's this is a complicated subject, but the pharmacy benefit managers are the group that we're talking about – we call them PBMs. Anybody that's in healthcare calls them PBMs. And down at the legislature, we use acronyms all the time. So people should get used to that term. But they're basically operating like the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain. And they do play an important role in our healthcare system by working between the pharmacies and the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical manufacturers. And yet, there's not much transparency in that particular industry. And some of the PBMs are owned by insurers, which makes it more complicated. Self-dealing. Yeah, and, and Melita, it can account for why you're paying more for your meds today than you were two years ago, say. Well, that's true. But the, the other thing is there are certain drugs for populations like di diabetics and insulin. And this there are other bills in the legislature right now not the one that k um dr k is is sponsoring that would set some ceilings on the prices families would pay for say the insulin needed for a diabetic child and those are some very needed reforms as well well let me tell you what this bill does it basically adds some transparency to the process uh, conflicts of interest have to be disclosed PBMs cannot steer patients to a specific pharmacy, which has been a big problem. And uh, the idea is that the consumers don't really know that all this is going on, yeah. and it protects them. It creates some additional reporting if prices are out of line in either direction, and it also creates an audit process. And, again, this is all under the auspices of the insurance commissioner. Um, and what, what, what are the chances of this? What are, your, what are you seeing as the chances for this measure, which could have an impact on what we all pay at the pharmacy for meds, 
Uh, is it going to get somewhere this session, do you believe? Well, the House passed a bill that yeah. was almost identical to the one that we passed in the Senate right. with very few differences. And like surprise billing, that gives it a better shot than it has had in previous years. You know, I'm interested in something about this from a political point of view, uh, Tamara. And then I'd love to hear you on this, too, Melita. Um, on yesterday's show, there was a conversation that had to do with how Republicans are looking this session at a number of pieces of legislation, which will, in some way, they hope, appeal to women. The maternal mortality bill, which the House has now supported, that extends Medicaid benefits being a prime example of that. I, it, Tamara or Melita, Melita, let me ask you first. Am I making a mistake to think that quite often in a household, it's the mother who is really paying the most attention to how much the, the, the meds are costing for the children in the house. In other words, do you see this as an effort in some ways to be uh, uh, supportive of the women who run households out there? By the way, I did not mean instead of working. <laughs> right. I, I think you're absolutely correct. But I think also what you have is some of those Republicans who had strong opposition last time, say Sharon Cooper, mm. the chair of the House Health Committee. She kept her seat by a margin of less than 1,000 votes, 818, in fact. And so a problem of maternal mortality, where Georgia had been at the bottom and had been kind of ignored by her committee in the House, suddenly became an issue which they had statewide hearings on. You've got Representative Gaines in Athens being the sponsor of um, paid time off, family leave time mm -hmm. off. So there are issues which Republicans had not paid as much attention to in the past. But after close elections for many of them last time in 2018, with the full knowledge that some of those same candidates would be back to oppose them in 2020, they have been more understanding about these problems, which they had once ignored. Tamar? Um, I think it's way broader than just women. Healthcare was the issue of the 2018 well, that's election. Yeah. Yes, clearly. And, and this, is a, this is a way to tackle a problem that, that all sorts of families, from rural families to suburban families, deal with. PBMs can be a convenient villain. No one really knows who they are. Um, you know, it's the man behind the curtain, as Senator Kirkpatrick mentioned. Um, and also this, this plays into what President Trump has talked about. He campaigned on lowering drug prices. And this is a way to do it that, that everyone seems like they're willing to support. Um, yeah, I, I want to give a little bit of a shout out to Lieutenant Governor Duncan. He put together a health care innovation task force this summer, and some of the things we're dealing with were a result of that. But it's an instance where the governor's office, lieutenant governor's office, and the health chairs in the Senate and the House are very interested in moving this uh, health care agenda forward. And obviously, I'm a physician, so I'm interested in patients and patient safety and that type of thing. But whatever the reasons, political or not political, I'm very happy that we're moving the ball on health It is. Joel, I mean, I've never seen a session where it felt like we were getting more accomplished in health care for the consumer of these these uh, 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 services. I agree. And, and when you're at the state capitol long enough, you see people 
continually um, being vigilant and introducing legislation and hoping one day that it would surface to the point beyond just a hearing that it would be taken seriously. And it's happening now. But I just have to say this, Bill, because I think you were alluding to it, that we have to understand the, the, the battleground areas in 2020 in the state of Georgia. And we understand that suburbia in Georgia is going to be ground zero for the for many for the political implication of the future of Georgia, yeah. especially the House. Right. So yes. it bodes well for Republicans to want to ensure that the uh, suburban voter realizes that they are taking their interests into account with policy wise. I'm going to give you the last word before we take a break. <laughs> sure. No pressure. Politically. Uh- it's, it's such a winner because when you look at all the polling of what's important to voters, health care is the top issue. At the same time, Obamacare, Medicaid expansion have become so politically poisonous. Um, you know, th- there's really not going to be much room to cross over on that issue and, and cut a deal that can actually be signed into law. These are areas that are ripe for a compromise that you can take home near. Well, voters. let's be careful. Poisonous, perhaps, to some politicians, sure. regardless of the fact that, say, Obamacare has become increasingly popular among voters out there. So you're talking about poisonous in terms of uh, partisan politics, I think, not sure. with the public. Sure. And and when you look at the 2018 elections, it was right after Republicans tried to repeal the ACA. Yeah, they're not right. going to they're not going to, I think, wholeheartedly embrace the ACA right. anytime soon. Right. And so I think this is a way to show your constituents well, I'm working hard you know, this is a winner. <laughs> well, then as we end the segment, uh, we will say it's fascinating to watch health care rise to the surface at the state capitol. Let's do this. Let's get a break out of the way. We'll come back, talk a little bit about uh, the budget uh, battle that is well underway down at the capitol. You're listening to Political Rewind. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Well, we've been saying really since last fall when Governor Kemp kind of made a surprise announcement that he wanted 4 percent reductions in the what we call the supplemental uh, budget and then 6 percent cuts in the uh, the big budget, the budget that takes us through fiscal year 2021, that this was going to be a year of fighting over money at the Capitol. And that certainly has been the case. Um, Tomorrow, yesterday, the House Appropriations Committee passed its version of the budget. And there were many things it did the governor didn't want. Some of the highlights include the governor in his budget called for $2,000 pay raises for teachers to fulfill his $5,000 total raise for teachers. Uh, House leaders cut it back to $1,000. Terry England, chair of the committee, said, look, we we know some teachers are going to be disappointed in this, but the fact of the matter is there are so many other needs right now that we're going to have to live with that. The House Appropriations Committee restored much of the funding for public and mental health uh, uh, services as well as rural health care. The governor's budget only gave additional maternal mortality care, Medicaid for women who've just given birth two months. The House extended it to six months, and they added any number of other 
uh, things into back into the budget that the governor had cut. So the battle is joined. Exactly. And and one of the surprise things I saw in there was a, a 2% pay raise for state employees um, and even higher in areas where low salaries mm-hmm. have made it hard to keep staffers, yeah. where it hasn't, you know, they, they haven't been able to keep pace with, with the current market. Melina? But also that tax cut. Well, yes. Uh, uh, Speaker Ralston made it clear yesterday that he is going to, in fact, take another bite out of the tax cut apple and a second year in a row, second session in a row, wants to cut taxes because they believe it's a winning issue at election time. And yet there's no evidence to prove that those cuts have the stated intention. Yeah, I mean, we're going to watch to see. I'm. You'll be interested in James Salzer, your colleague, I'm sure, at the AJC, will analyze this in depth to figure out how much value it adds. But, uh, you know, Senator Kirkpatrick, the whole House, I believe, is supposed to vote on the budget today. That's what I heard. They'll send it over to you in the Senate. What When you saw what the House had put back in, what were your general reactions? Well— First of all, I'm not on appropriations, just yeah, full disclosure. Sure. <laughs> uh, I do have to say that Senator Jack Hill, who's the head of our appropriations committee, is a rock star, and he understands the budget probably better than anybody in the legislature, with a few exceptions. Um, but there's always a balancing act that takes place between expenses and programs that are critical. I think some of the cuts that actually took place should have been done a long time ago in terms of Let's teleconference and do less travel. Let's uh, be more efficient with the way we use our phones and things like that. And it shouldn't take a governmental directive to do that, but that's just the way it goes. But some of the things that got put back in um, are really important. I uh, actually wrote a letter to the chairman about the accountability courts. That's Mm -hmm. an excellent program that pays results well beyond whatever year we're talking about in terms of the budget. So it's a very difficult balance because we balance our budget in Georgia, and I don't know uh, how long the process is going to take. It usually takes most of the session to (laughs) finish the process, and, you know, our Session's going to be over here in just a few weeks. So there's still a lot of negotiating going on. So um, the $1,000 raise for teachers instead of $2,000, eventually you will have to vote on the big budget. And if that number stays the same, is that going to be hard to explain to teachers out there? Well, I think teachers have been paying attention to the conversation. And I think everybody is – nobody's saying that the teachers shouldn't get their pay raise. Eventually the question is, is this the right year for the whole – banana. And that is really the controversy. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not really, you know, I don't think you'll find anybody who's going to say that teachers don't deserve right. their full pay raise at some point. It's just about timing. And obviously there's more to it than money. Teacher retention is a huge deal. And so uh, I hear from my teachers a lot. I'll bet you do. Uh, Joel, you've got a front row seat. You're down at the Capitol almost every day, I think. I am. I am. I, and I don't, want to, I don't want to sound like a cynic, but my concern is about sustainability and that I know what the House had to go through, what the Senate would go through in order to ensure that there was a balanced budget and ensuring that, that some of the those critical cuts are the money is put back. So kind of to Melita's point, so if we, if we take another bite at the revenue apple, 
I mean, our, what what's lead us to believe that all of a sudden we're going to find the right formula to ensure that all these programs that we care about are going to be fully funded? I mean, we're going to go through the same thing. It's going to be Groundhog Day all over again and maybe even worse off. So I'm trying to really understand the logic behind um, reducing revenue unless they believe that some of the other legislation that was passed can make up You're for the loss. Talking about the tax cut itself, right. which is, I think, $250 million this time around, uh, more than that, the tax cut that they put into place last year. One thing that we have yet to mention is kind of the latest chapter in the, the Speaker Ralston versus Brian Kemp <laughs> feud over, over the budget. Um, and the Speaker said that leaders are going to back legislation putting limits on the governor's ability to withhold spending approved by the General Assembly. Um, so he he did some of that. The, the governor did some of that last year. Yeah. And so this is them fighting back. And, and I assume the governor will not take kindly to the House advancing are, such are, legislation. Let me let me I, I haven't I don't know this the way you apparently do. Are we talking about eliminating the ability of the governor to veto line item veto the budget? Um. Unclear, actually. I'm, okay. I'm going through my, my colleague James Salzer's story. All right, story, we're going to watch that. I'm gonna, we, we need to check into that and make sure exactly what the proposal is going to be. Because on, on a that. federal level, when I was covering federal spending, it's it's illegal for the president to right. impound money like that. That was something yeah. that they dealt yeah. with with President Nixon back in the 70s. Um, oh, so this has more to do with taking money that's been appropriated for mm-hmm. one thing, yes. Kay Kirkpatrick, oh. right, and using it for a different purpose. It's not about line item uh, vetoes in the budget itself, document well, itself. I think that's what you said is correct. Okay. And, 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 and in some ways, governors may be taking their cues from the president in the way he's funded his wall and mm-hmm. in other ways that he has changed funding priorities. All right, listen, we got to take our final break of the show. We're going to take it a little early, a little early because Senator Kirkpatrick is due at the state capitol. They've got a 10 o'clock start time, and you don't want to be late walking in the door at the Senate. We've got a lot of bills today. Yeah, crossover, crossover day is Thursday. Uh, there will be even more that day. So, yeah, I would prefer not to be late, and I appreciate you letting me. Yeah, thank you so much for being with us. Let us get to our break, and we'll uh, sneak you out the door. Senator Kay Kirkpatrick, come back again sometime. It was fun having you. All right, we'll be right back. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, Joel Alvarado is with us. Melita Easter is Tamar Hallerman. Um, let me start with you, to, um, Tamar. With you, Melita, Georgia Winlist qualifying last week. How many candidates that you identified qualified and are on the ballot for uh, uh, May and beyond? Well, in general, because we haven't endorsed for our next round. We already have 20 women on the ballot we've endorsed. But of incumbent women, 14 face primary races only, 14 have general election races, and three have both. Of new face races, there is one with primary only, 48 with general election races, so running against Republicans usually to flip a seat. Wait, are are most of those then women who are running to take over seats now controlled by Republicans? There are 48 women who would try to flip a seat held by a Republican. So these are part of that 187 Democrats who have qualified in 80 percent of the legislative district. Right. And then there are 11 women who have both primary and general election 
So they've got to win a primary so that they can try to flip a seat. So there are women are the preponderance of the candidates who are trying to flip seats. And then there are some women who are candidates in primary safe seats. Um, One woman, I think it's very interesting when Craig Gordon down in Savannah decided not to run again. The woman who qualified that I'd been working with for two and a half years who went through our leadership training program, Anne Allen Westbrook, is interestingly enough, um, she was on the moot court team in law school with Jen Jordan. Wow. <laughs> so that tells you about her intellect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And it would be very interesting to see those two former moot court teammates from UGA Law, one in the House, one in the Senate, both with those keen legal minds. One quick question, and then I know tomorrow I want to jump in. Uh, is this the biggest group that this you've ever qualified? This is the biggest group of by women. By far, by an exponential by far, number? By far. <clears throat> there were bigger groups of Democratic challengers back when the Democrats were in power but back then, more of the candidates were men. Yeah. This is the largest number of women candidates we've ever seen in Georgia. Well, Tamar? And, and I wanted to ask how this compares to the batch we saw in 2018, because that was the first group after Trump was elected, and there was a ton of rage about that. I covered a lot of them on the congressional level. Uh, but, but were you seeing more candidates jump in this year or who maybe saw they were encouraged by what happened in 2018? Yes, Women who worked on the campaigns of other women in 2018 are running in 2020 because they see that they can do it in their district. Um, One other example that I find interesting is for Scythe County. There are there's one woman running for a Senate seat and then Democrats qualified five people to run for House seats. And yes, for Scythe County has always been ruby red, but they've been registering at least a 1,000 voters a month in that county. And so you've got to run Democrats there to figure out what those new, how those new voters are going to vote. Um, Joe, uh, many women, as Melita explains, but men as well, this is a hard-charging Democratic effort right. to try to change control, certainly of the Georgia House, if not the Senate. But think about it. Think about what's what's coming forward, right? If we don't win the House, and that's we with a capital W, we don't win the House, we have the risk of redistricting. And then we have once the census comes out and then we see where the numbers lay. And so that's another 10 years that where a district can be drawn um, from the federal down to the local level that could diminish the gains made by by Democrats across the state. So we have to, this is, we have to draw the line now. We have to make sure that we're able to uh, secure one of the chambers to ensure that there's some sort of equity and some sort of balance uh, regarding the, the redrawing of the, p- of the political lines. It's going to be a tough, tough effort. I mean, it's not a given that Democrats will sort of waltz into control. Oh, no. They're going to have it's a big very, fight. To get. It's very, very. Yeah. These are tough, tough battles. <clears throat> Absolutely. But to his point about the gerrymandering, the other thing about the gerrymandering is the Republicans have held on to power with very carefully carved districts that cut up counties, major counties, that would themselves be the center county of a congressional district, but instead they're carved into several congressional mm-hmm. districts. And, P- and, and even Brian Kemp's own county, Clark County, is carved into three different congressional districts. 
So the the Republicans have reached the limit of how carefully they can carve in Georgia because the demographics of the state are shifting. Absolutely. Tamara, it strikes me that a corollary to this story in terms of how women are exerting themselves in politics today is the growing cry. And it, it strikes me that it has gotten even louder since Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris earlier, Elizabeth Warren – all dropped out. The only women uh, who uh, had an opportunity to run for president this time around dropped out. Uh, the growing cry that whoever the nominee is better pick a woman as his running mate. Sure. And you exclude Tulsi Gabbard, who hasn't gotten much momentum. Well, well she's look, got one delegate, I think. Sure, like sure. But you look and it's three septuagenarians. You have yeah. uh, three white men. You have you have Donald Trump. You have Bernie Sanders. You have you have Joe Biden. So there, there's certainly that that feeling. Um especially when it comes down to these legislative races and also congressional. Uh, you mentioned it's not going to be a cakewalk for Democrats. And it's important to note how much the the tenor of the presidential race and the developments there are going to seep down and impact everybody from the from the, the David Perdue and Kelly Leffler Senate races all the way down to these state house seats. So even sometimes, despite the best candidates you might be able to find, sometimes it's very hard to separate yourself from what's going on nationally. Right. It's about what is what is the controlling narrative out there, right? And that narrative is really being dictated to us on the, the highest level of the campaign. Well, everything, world. as we said on the show yesterday, everything is now about Donald Trump, period. Right. I mean, that's all there is to it. But let me, um, Alita, you know, this provides us a really good uh, transition into talking just a bit about what we're calling mini Super Tuesday today, six states voting for uh, president. Um over the weekend, Bernie Sanders spent the entire weekend because polling is showing him far behind Biden in Michigan, particularly, which is a crucial state in the state. And uh, the Washington Post this morning had a big takeout on just how much Sanders is suddenly doing after not addressing it much to attract female voters. Well, he's got a lot of room to a lot of room to make up for because his Bernie bros have been so mean about the women candidates and they've been so abusive to anyone who dared criticize Bernie. So he's got a lot of make, kissing and making up to do as far as women voters go. Yeah, it's uh, but but it, it's interesting again that here it, it's awfully late in the season to suddenly realize that women are a powerful voting block. <laughs> It's real late. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all right, Joel and Tamara, uh, the polling does show Bernie Sanders getting his clock cleaned in Michigan. But, I mean, 23 points behind uh, uh, Biden, I think, in 538's poll average as of this morning. But we can't forget history. Four years ago, as she was cruising toward the Democratic presidential nomination, Hillary Clinton was out front in Michigan by some 21 points. That victory would have pretty much uh, given her a clear path. Uh, and Sanders turned around and shocked the political world by winning Michigan by a point and a half. Uh, this isn't the same dynamic, mm -hmm. but we better not count out Bernie Sanders quite yet. Well. Never, never uh, count anybody out. Just as, just I would not be a good lobbyist if I didn't realize that I don't stop lobbying until that final bell <laughs> rings at the end of the session, and probably still continue lobbying after that. But nonetheless, um, 
I think you never count anybody out. You have to continue working as if you're in a tight race. But I will say this, the environment has changed a lot. And I think the novelty of Bernie Sanders has has, has dissipated in that people are seeing him as the other side of the coin of Trump that is just angry and just and that anger is being um, is being you know launched at somebody else and I think what Joe Biden brings is this idea of safety and security where people feel comfortable around him because think about it we're in a, we're in a tumultuous time our economy coronavirus um, the tensions we have with with our with our in, in, in foreign in, in foreign world and and there's just a lot happening and I think people want some stability so that's why they're gravitating to um, to Joe Biden but also let me just say this real quick that we have to be conscious that there is a new Southern strategy and Joe Biden is applying it. And the Southern <laughs> strategy is African-American community and women are really in the forefront of, of moving this region into um, into success for Biden and others. Well, one example of that is that the polling and there's not a lot of it, but what polling there is shows that Biden is ahead of uh, Sanders in Mississippi, which votes today by 50 points. Uh, yes. Tomorrow, uh, so the South is a stronghold uh, for uh, Joe Biden at this point. But, but uh, the Biden people would uh, abuse or attack uh, Sanders at their own risk moving forward. I mean, they need those voters to come back to them uh, in the election. Absolutely. And and it's it's just important to note how critical today is for Bernie Sanders and, and how important Michigan is specifically. Because, you know, not only would it give him 125 delegates if he wins, but it's also going to set the tone for a bunch of really important nominating contests in the industrial Midwest coming up. You have Ohio and Illinois later on in March, and you have Wisconsin in, in early April. And so if he can't get a shift in momentum, or at least just a, a sense that he's kind Kind of back in it a little more after his Super Tuesday, voters could truly abandon him and go straight to Joe Biden. Yeah, and the context, larger context, and all that, of course, Melita, is Donald Trump's victory in Michigan in the 2016 general election, and whether or not it's Sanders or Biden who bring in that coalition of white working class voters that gave the state to Trump. Well, Biden has always performed well amongst that dynamic of white working class voters. And I think the other thing that we have to realize is that his eight years, Biden's eight years as wingman to Barack Obama has made him much beloved in the black community. Right. Well, it's going to be fun to watch tonight. Let's see. We've got got Michigan, Mm -hmm. Mississippi, Mm -hmm. Missouri, Washington State, Idaho, what am I missing? And North Dakota. And North Dakota, all uh, voting tonight. So it's going to be fascinating to see how all of this uh, turns out. Um, Sam Burmis Dawes did a really terrific uh, man on the street, or Vox piece, as we call it in radio, with some voters. And Sam, I apologize for not getting to it today, but we will get to it. Um, he, re- he talked to some voters and uh, here in Atlanta, and their comments on who they like for the presidential preference primary are interesting. We will take that on and try to get it on before the week is out. All right. That's it for us today. Tamara Hellerman, thank you for being with us. We look forward to reading you in the AJC in the days ahead. Melita Easters, thank you you for being here. Joel Alvarado, a pleasure to uh, see you as well. That's it for us uh, today. We're back tomorrow. 
Uh, two shows, as always. We're on at 9 with an encore uh, broadcast at 2. So join us when you can or subscribe to our podcast. Listen to us online. Any way you can, you can get your political rewind. I'm Bill Nigat. Take care.